This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we are going to discuss realism, a term that uh, appears in almost every day's newspaper, especially in the foreign policy section, a term used quite often to justify a wide variety of foreign policy options and activities. We're going to talk today about what realism really is as an intellectual tradition, as an approach to policy and approach to politics, and what it means for democracy if the United States is to be a practitioner of realism in the world, but also a supporter of democracy at the same time. Uh, We're fortunate to be joined by a scholar who has written some of the most important work on the topic. This is a topic that's received a lot of attention, but he has written, I think, a dynamite new book on the topic, as well as many things before this. Uh, This is Jonathan Kirshner. He's a professor of political science and international studies at Boston College. Prior to joining uh, Boston College, he was the Stephen and Barbara Friedman Professor of International Political Economy in the Department of Government at Cornell University. He's the author of numerous articles and books. Uh, Most recently, in 2014, Jonathan wrote American Power After the Financial Crisis, and most recently, the book we're going to talk about today, An Unwritten Future, Realism, Uncertainty, and World Politics. Jonathan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to come here and have this chat. Uh, Before we turn to our chat with Jonathan, we have, of course, uh, Mr. Zachary's uh, poem. What's the title of your poem today? For Want of an Overcoat. Okay. It's pretty hot here, but let's, let's hear about For Want of an Overcoat. Tell me, did you want to burn the bread when you pressed the button that launched the missile which shattered my windows? Did you want to burn my bread? Did you want to tear down my curtains? Did you want to make me stoop down with a dustpan to pick up 14,227 pieces of glass? This is reality. This is politics. I reach down and hold the melted shards of sand. The breeze comes biting from the east, a whistling cold and ominous. They say you can hear the rivers sigh when winter comes, that you can feel the water curl back into the ground. But if if winter has a sound, it is this noise in the basement bomb shelter as the windows shatter again, one at a time, counting up the dozen floors to the sky. When you press the button that launched the missile which shattered my windows, you probably never realized that you were a glider on history's winds. That, but for a few moments, when they put on their decision-making, all the deaths, threads of glass, on an overcoat, more and more hiding their faces, but for a few threads, for a single stitch, for want of an overcoat, you too may have been pressing the buttons on the elevator of our apartment block, upwards to your shattered windows and your shattered lives." 
I love the imagery there, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is, uh, on the one hand, about the uh, randomness of, of war and of state violence uh, and the ways in which it affects individuals in, in, in completely, in not completely, but almost uh, entirely random and ways, and it can seem so absurd at times, but also the ways in which uh, the decisions of states and the way those decisions affect people's lives is dependent on historical contingency uh, and on broader historical trends. And I think that's a key theme in, in Jonathan's uh, writing. Uh, Jonathan's connecting the poem to your book. Why do you talk of an unwritten future? Why is realism about an unwritten future? Well, the phrase an unwritten future is really written somewhat in dissent of uh, an approach that we commonly see with some uh, realists and with some students of international politics in which they think that the future is somehow, that it's possible to anticipate the future with certainty in ways that I don't think is possible. Um, this is a little technical, but uh, a lot of scholars imagine the future as unfolding along lines we might associate with actuarial risk. Like you roll a set of dice. I can't tell you what number is going to come up on those dice, but I can tell you the exact possibilities of any possible number coming up. And I'd be right about that in the long run. But in a world of uncertainty as opposed to risk, we simply don't know what's going to happen next. And so the future is unwritten. And I think starting that as a point of departure is very important. Um, and it also informs the way in which choices matter. So there are some forms of international relations theory that suggest that choices don't really matter. It's all a function of structural pressures. Uh, but if the future is unwritten, then choices, policies, politics, diplomacy, all these things matter in shaping that future along a number of plausible pathways. Why isn't the future written? I mean, the, the structural realist argument that you contrast your classical realist argument, as you call it, from, um, it has a powerful uh, pull because it, you know, it does say that countries with more power and more capability are likely to get their way more often than not. What, what, what is wrong with that set of presumptions? Uh, that's Nothing. So I'll give you that. Uh, I think power is a very important arbiter of outcomes in world politics. Um, but I do think that structural realism uh, then looks solely at the distribution of power, and that's where the issue, looking solely at the distribution of power to try and explain outcomes will come up short because even the very analogies that it draws upon, uh, which it draws upon from microeconomic theory, suggest that there are a broad range of possible outcomes so that it's not to take an economistic analogy, which is what the structural realists use, it's not a world of perfect competition where every actor is confronted with structural constraints like the price level and must act accordingly. Rather, it's imperfect competition. It's oligopolistic competition where great powers make choices about what to do next. And those choices affect what the world looks like. And economists have shown us that under oligopolistic competition, any number of possible outcomes is possible. So if I can wave the, the flag of classical realism here, it was Raimondo Rolland who said that in the international system, great powers determine as much as they are shaped by the nature of the international system. Mm -hmm, mm 
Mm-hmm. And and you you cite uh, Aron a number of times, including in the introduction, focusing on the limits of what you call hyper-rationality and instead social cohesion and other dynamics that influence states. How should we think about that? I think the question of rationality is a very important one. And here, again, I'm, I'm a self-identified realist, and there's some branding here. If you call yourself a realist, you're kind of saying to other people, what are your theories? Unrealistic, right? So in, in a certain sense, there's just some public relations going on there. Similarly, with rationality, there's a very narrow definition of rationality that's rattling around out there and is very influential in international relations theory. And if you don't embrace it, the notion is somehow, well, are you saying actors are irrational? And I think the difference between classical realism and other forms of realism and certainly uh, the, another approach to world politics called the bargaining model has a different assumption of what rationality looks like. Um, and so it's still rational, but it's different than the kind of back of the envelope definition of rationality commonly used and is actually erroneous. Um, I can elaborate uh, tremendously on this if you would like. Absolutely. I mean, what is the, the, I like this back of the envelope rationality. How should we understand that? Because that's the rationality you're embracing, right? Yes. So classical realism and classical realists do view their actors as more or less rational. They can order their preferences. Um, They can take actions designed to advance those preferences in a way that makes sense to them following a logic that outside observers can understand. Um, But they're more rational muddlers than kind of chess-playing machines. There's a lot they don't know. And most importantly, the difference between a classical realist conception of rationality and, and, say, an economistic definition of rationality is that the economistic definition of rationality insists that if two actors look at the same information they must draw the same conclusion from that information. And that's an extremely narrow definition of rationality. And it's also an inappropriate definition of of rationality for the study of world politics, because that requires that all actors in the system share the same underlying causal model of how the world works. If actors can share, can have different causal models in their minds about how the world works, this will cause this, that will cause that, then two people looking at exactly the same information can draw markedly different conclusions about the implications of that information. And so you really have to decide, um, do you believe there is one universal known shared model Or do actors walk around with different models in their heads, often implicit models, and therefore come to situations rationally, that is, they're processing that information through their thoughtful models, but those models can often be competing with one another and therefore lead to very different sets of expectations about what's going to happen next, which brings us back, of course, to my unwritten future. What does this kind of uh, approach to international relations look like in the real world, if you will? How would uh, a a classical realist view a situation like, say, the Russian invasion of Ukraine? I think that's a very good example because both the invasion and how the invasion has gone um, has been, I think, unanticipated. 
Um, I don't think most observers got the invasion they thought they were going to get. And I'm very confident that most observers didn't get the war that they thought they were going to get. Uh, so part of it is we simply don't know what is going to happen because we don't have an under, that, that underlying correct shared model of how actors will behave and what will happen afterwards. There's a, a very, this very powerful, or not very powerful, this very influential model of international politics, the bargaining model, would be very confused by the Russia-Ukraine confrontation because since Russia and Ukraine should know exactly in advance what would happen if the two sides came to blows, then they should simply be able to understand that and reach a rational bargain that would have the outcome we would know that would happen, but without all the horrible cost and blood and treasure. But because in the real world, actors don't know what's going to happen next, often they don't even know how they're going to behave. That kind of hyper-rationality simply isn't productive in understanding what's going on. So, it's in, so the Russia-Ukraine confrontation, aside from looking very realist in many ways, and we can talk about that, um, fits well with the vision of classical realism in that it has so many surprises, so many things that are unanticipated. And if there's a mantra of classical realism, it's not to predict, but to sort of anticipate the range of possible outcomes so that you won't be essentially caught with your pants down. So we're not going to say, this if this happens, then this will happen. But you can say, well, here are, some, here are the range of likely consequences of these types of behaviors, and we ought to be alert to those prospects. Yeah. That, that to me, what you just described so well, Jonathan, that, that's very compelling. And it is, it's classical, it, it, it's Thucydides, right? I mean, this is the essence of what he's describing the Peloponnesian War. Your, your book is filled with a wonderful analysis and elaboration on Thucydides and Morgan, Hans Morgenthau and others. Um, what are the stakes here, though? Why, why does this matter? You wrote a, a, a full long book about this that's filled with lots of details and graphs and various other items. What, what are the stakes here? Well, at an academic level, which may not be super interesting, um, it's an effort to offer an approach to describe, explain, understand, and anticipate events in world politics. At a practical level, if we're doing that better, uh, then perhaps we're avoiding uh, terrible blunders and making somewhat savvier of foreign policy decisions. But there. I would not want to sell this as a magic bullet. It's the articulation of one approach to understanding, explaining, and describing how the international world works. Um, I think it's a productive one. I don't think it should be the only one, but I think we should be aware of its strengths and weaknesses and what it can tell us about the real world. And if we look at lots and lots of practical situations around the world, um, we can see that classical realism and other approaches have distinct things to say and perhaps offer uh, various insights into situations that that might be productive for policymakers and the general public. So, so looking over the last decade and then looking forward uh, as well as we can, recognizing that the future is unwritten, as you say, and as I think any historian would agree, what are some of the key insights you think that classical realism has for our listeners who care about foreign policy but might not be IR scholars? I would say there are several. Um, one is an, a kind of an easy one, which is I don't think it was just classical realists. I think that 
most realists uh, of every stripe uh, thought that the U.S. Uh, war in Iraq was misguided. Again, not because the U.S. probably wouldn't have been able to uh, defeat the Iraqi army, but rather because of the unpredictable, cascading political effects that would follow in the wake uh, of that um, invasion. So I think one rule of thumb that classical realism brings to the table that perhaps regular folks don't think about a lot is that, and this is Clausewitzian in its conception, right, which is that force only has meaning in its political consequences. So we want to look at international politics, and we want to look at the use of force, and we want to look at the prospect for war and conflict, and we want to understand that being able to blow things up, or being very powerful, or being mighty, or having a strong military is, is a means to an end, but that end is political. So what are the political consequences of the application of force, and what are the political outcomes that you're introducing force for in the first place, and will the introduction of force in that way, in that context, bring you closer or further to the goals that you are seeking. So that's one, I think, very important example. Um, but then there are, of course, lots of other areas of the world where we can look around and see the applicability of classical realism. But I, I think I would go back to another, perhaps general lesson of classical realism that I think, again, the average person might not think about as much, which is that politics never ends, so that there is no finish line. So that when we see political contestation or even war, and there's a winner and a loser in that conflict and that war, not far behind that will be a new set of political contestations. So that international politics may be benign, it may be malign, but it will invariably involve serially the endless conflict of interests, the clash of interests between motivated actors. And settling one conflict will not settle matters indefinitely. It will rather just pave the way for the next set of contestations, which doesn't mean there'll be war. It just means the classical realist perspective looks at world politics as a series of contestations between clashing interests. Right. And, and, uh in in contrast to more structural social science realism it's making the case that each iteration from conflict to conflict is that much more unpredictable yes but i i would say um if we want to focus on introducing classical realism and structural realism it really has to do with the role of both purpose in addition to power structural realism limits us only to power it sees the world and what it says as like units, that's countries of the world, distinguished only by their relative capabilities, how powerful they appear to be. Classical realism says, of course, power matters, and you must be attentive to the balance of power, and power will often be the arbiter of disputes. But to understand how states are going to behave, to understand what states will want, you have to understand their purpose as well, which will be varied from country to country and from setting to setting. So classical realism insists upon variables that structural realism forbids, like the role of history and society in shaping what states actually will want. Power does not determine purpose. Rather, both power and purpose jointly determine behavior. 
How do we understand then the role of individuals, in particular individuals who see themselves or, or at least think they are outside of politics? For example, how do we understand, uh, say, in the war in Ukraine, the overwhelming reaction to the Russian invasion uh, by ordinary Ukrainians? And how can we account for that when it seems we're dealing mostly with state actors? So that's a, a very deep question for which I don't have a short answer. But I do think that one of the lessons of that invasion, and it's a law Excuse me, it's a, it's a guideline, not a rule, as I think Bill Murray first said in Ghostbusters, is that most polities prefer not to be dominated by other polities. And so when you're going about the business of invading another country, that's something that really should be kept in mind. Um, again, I don't think there are laws about this, but I do think that this is an important general tendency and, again, informed by the perceived historical lessons of the people involved. And so we do see, I think, this natural tendency uh, for resistance, which in some historical cases has been, has been overcome by, by conquerors, but which is an important factor and certainly one that's playing a very important factor in this particular confrontation. You close the book, Jonathan, uh, in very classical realist fashion, if I might say so, with a, an elaborate discussion about the problems of hubris. And and you have this under a heading uh, about social cohesion and the end of the American order. Um, so even though the future is unwritten, you, you, you see a certain direction of things. I'd love for you to elaborate on that. Sure. Um, you've touched upon three separate things, so I'm going to try and do them in turn. Um, the question of hubris, I think that's a very important one for um, classical realism and one that distinguishes it from structural realism and from varieties of hyper-rationalism. Classical realists, and this goes all the way back to the Thucydides, but it, it weaves its way through all of classical realist thought, expect that great powers will be arrogant and grasping and in fact, over-arrogant and over-grasping. Whereas a structural realist or a hyper-rationalist will think they sort of dispassionately will assess their relative power and parse out their opportunities in, in a very dispassionate way. Um, and so I think that the role of hubris in great power politics is central to classical realism when dealing with the great powers, of course, and, and, and disregarded by other approaches to politics. So I think that's very important. Now, if I can build a little chain here, hubris was one of the things that undermined um, the American order. You know, the American order that was forged in 1945, and which I would say is, is in the process of unraveling now, part of it had to do with the fact that the US failed to appreciate the limits of its own capabilities uh, and made foolish decisions in that context. At the same time, and this is a little off topic, but I, I do a lot of international political economy work, as they call it, there was some economic hubris involved in the financialization of the American economy, which contributed to a dramatic these, these dramatic polarizations of, of equality of income and wealth that we see in the American economy. And so the period of the first two decades of the 21st century has been one characterized by both these acts of great hubris and also the consequences of these 
economic transformations within American society. Two variables, again, that are, we can associate with classical realism, um, but we are forbidden by other approaches to the study of world politics. And so if we look at the world in 2020, and we look at the American domestic political setting, um, there's good reason to question whether it is in a position to sort of engage the world in the way that it did for the 75 years previously. And once again, we can only see that if we reach for variables that are understandable to classical realism, but incomprehensible to other approaches. So I can't begin to explain American behavior personally without looking at its two 21st century wars and without looking at the political consequences of the management of the global financial crisis of 2007, 2008. But again, these variables are forbidden to other perspectives. But if I wanna understand how the US is gonna behave, I would reach quickly uh, for those variables. And again, as you, as you chastise me appropriately, I'm not in the business of prediction, but I do think that those factors have contributed to an unraveling of what we could call the American order that was first constructed after the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And so how would classical realism, assuming that's correct, and it's a, it's a plausible argument, how would classical realism prepare us then to deal with what comes next? Well, I'd say there are several things that I would want to focus on. One, as always, uh, and I guess all realists would kind of share this view, is that it's a dangerous and uncertain world. And so, you know, the realist watchword is prudence. Sometimes that word that, that, that is leaned upon too heavily, uh, but certainly a, an instinct for caution and a sensitivity to the potential for dangerous developments to occur in the world is very important. Um, and we haven't yet talked about, you know, the rise of China and things like that, but I do want to distinguish a classical realist perspective by saying that it would again emphasize the politics of that. What is the political um, threat that emanates from China and how might the U.S. engage politically in a reaction to it and focus a little less on the changing military balance of power, although certainly the changing military balance of power matters tremendously. However, again, going back to the early Cold War and something you'll certainly be very familiar with, you know, George F. Kennan emphasized the Cold War more as a political confrontation than as a military confrontation and had to be managed in that context. So the emphasis on the politics of international politics is one thing I think classical realism would emphasize moving forward. But the other does bring us back to American politics. How powerful is the United States? Well, it's got an incredibly impressive military machine, you know, ships and tanks and planes and weapons and all of these things. It surely is the most formidable military in the world. But is there an unraveling of its own domestic social cohesion that might create a great distance between its actualized power and its ability to use that power purposefully in world politics. I don't necessarily mean in a wartime, in, in a warlike situation. I simply mean marshalling its resources to advance its own interests internationally. So if I wanted to understand American power right now in this era, from a classical realist perspective, I would be focusing a lot more on what strike me as the domestic political dysfunctions in American society, much more than I'd be counting how many tanks we had compared to some other country. 
Right. So for, for, for you as a classical realist, elections matter enormously, whereas for structural realists and many other IR theorists, elections don't matter as much, right? Exa- yes, that is exactly right. So, so Jonathan, this has been super helpful in explicating a, a very thoughtful, sophisticated uh, analysis of international relations, and I encourage our listeners to read your book, which is beautifully written and really takes a lot of these meaty, complex subjects, goes into more depth, but also makes them very accessible, which is which is really hard to do. It's something I really admire in your writing. We always like to close, Jonathan, with a, a question about um, using the scholarship, the history, the social science that we discuss each week, using it to improve the world. And many of our listeners care about democracy. That's what our podcast is about each week. How does your book, how does your analysis of, of classical realism help us to think perhaps in some productive ways about a future for more vibrant democracy at home and abroad what 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 can what can you add to that that mission statement um i think classical realism has something to say about that um it is often commonly said that it is realist to view the world as a dangerous and amoral place and therefore you may behave in the world in the international arena in an amoral fashion Uh, because you have to protect your own society and the national interest is sacrosanct. Um, But I I think a classical realist perspective embraces the first part. It says, yes, the world is a dangerous and often amoral place in which horrifying acts of barbarism take place. But that is a description of how the world works. Uh, And you need to be alert to the fact that the world is fraught with danger and latent or present potentials for horrifying barbarism. And that yes, we must be cautious about the limits of our own power and the dangers that are lurking out there. But too many realists and many people who observe realism have seen that as sort of a get out of jail free card, (laughs) meaning I can do whatever I want without concern uh, uh, for for values or or, uh, uh, other goals. And the first does not necessarily imply the second. So that you can think the world is a dangerous and amoral place uh, and reckon with the consequences of that. But that doesn't mean that you can't still bring your own values and judgments to bear on how you would craft a foreign policy. Right. So so this is saying that you can buy into Hobbes uh, in seeing the, the world as nasty, brut- filled with violence and nasty, brutish and, brutish and short behavior. But at the same time, that's not a license to simply do more of the same. Exactly. It's not a, it's not a license to kill. Um, I mean, I think realists would urge people who want to do good in the world to be alert to the limits of our own power to the limits of our own capacity and to the power of others. And so those are three important constraints on trying to quote unquote, do good, but there's nothing that stops us from trying to do good in that context. Zachary, is that helpful? Because I know uh, something that many young thinkers and political activists struggle with is the ugliness of parts of our world, the desire to make it better, but still also the recognition that you have to sometimes dive into the ugliness to find a way out, right? This is the Machiavellian dilemma also, right? That there's certain things you have to do you'd prefer not to do to try to get to good ends. Does this help one think about that? 
I think it really does. I think it, it, it shows us a very important truth, which is that in some ways you have to understand the system and be willing to work within the system if you want to change the system. And I think that, uh, that as young people, we are naturally outsiders to the system. And so we have a, a greater degree of clarity about the way the world works, or, or at least we think we do. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and but we also have to have to have to learn to work within that world right. before we can think about changing it. Right. And and I like Jonathan's point that he made so clearly here. Right. That there are some things you have to do that might have questionable questionable moral valences, but you have to still be conscious of the moral purpose behind what you're doing. That it's not an excuse. The system does not excuse immoral judgments. Right. And, and, and those, uh, I don't know if we would call them moral or sorry, immoral or amoral decisions, but, but the, the decisions you have to make, which, which, which go beyond what you'd normally be willing to do have to be, uh, to serve good ends. And you, you have to keep the purpose in mind as you, as you make those decisions. Right. Right. So now go ahead, Jonathan. I just want to add here. I, I agree with everything that was said, but, uh, I think classical realism is a little gloomy. And I, so I just want to toss into this mix that, oftentimes there isn't an obviously right choice. And so much of, of world politics and foreign policy, even the best intended one, is choosing the best among a menu of unpalatable options. And, and one must choose because even inaction is in a way a choice. And so it would be great if we could say, well, this is the right, good and correct thing to do and that one will work. And this is the nasty, mean one that won't work. When rather, again, because there's a lot of uncertainty and because choices are often difficult and unpleasant, um, we are often, you know, we're not presented with the pristine options of here's the good thing to do and here's the bad thing to do. Right. I, I think it's Morgenthau who writes about uh, lesser evils, right? But choosing lesser evils is not a justification for choosing evil. Those are two different things, right, Jonathan? <laughs> Thank you so much, Jonathan, for joining us today. You, you've done really a, a brilliant and compelling uh, job of articulating some of the key themes, certainly not all or even most of the themes in your wonderful book. I want to recommend it to uh, really all of our listeners who care about foreign policy and care about politics, uh, which I guess is everyone. Uh, the book is again titled An Unwritten Future, Realism and Uncertainty in World Politics. Uh, Jonathan, thank you again. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure having this conversation, as I knew it would be. <laughs> and Zachary, uh, thank you for your poem, uh, for want of an overcoat this week, and for your insights and your struggles with lesser evils and um, international political change. Uh, most of all, thank you to our loyal audience for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.